For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Yeah, it's kind of a sad night because we're finishing the book of Acts. This book that started way back in Acts chapter 1, before Jesus had even ascended to heaven, where he made this promise to his followers. He said, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit and you're going to receive power. And you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the very ends of the earth. And we've been all over the place. We've been all over the Roman Empire in the book of Acts. And there's only one place we haven't been. A city that was arguably not just the most important city of its day. A city that was not just the most important city in the history of Western civilization, but a city that you could argue is the most important city in the history of the world. And that city is, of course, Cleveland. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Rome, yes, Rome. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you thought I was gonna say Youngstown, didn't you? <laughs> now tonight, they say that all roads lead to Rome. Well, tonight, Paul's road will finally lead to Rome, that place that he's been longing to go to. And this is after spending several years in prison. Remember, we, we followed Paul from the end of his third missionary journey back to Jerusalem, where he was arrested by the jealous religious leaders there. They formed a mob. He was seized by the Romans. He was transferred up to Caesarea, the seat of the Roman governor. After two years there, it became clear Paul couldn't get a fair trial, and so he exercised his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar, where he could go and he could be tried before Nero Caesar himself. And so let's just pick up this scene in Acts chapter 27. He's down here in Caesarea, and it says, when the time came, we set sail for Italy. So Luke is with Paul. I don't know how Luke got aboard the prison ship. Maybe as like the physician or something. So Luke is to go with him. And it says, Paul and several other prisoners were placed in the custody of a Roman officer named Julius, a captain of the Imperial Regiment. So a very high-ranking officer is in charge of taking these prisoners back to Rome. Julius, a guy who's going to feature somewhat prominently in Acts 27. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was also with us. He was one of the guys chosen by the Thessalonians to carry this sum of money back to Jerusalem. And he somehow gets on the ship. Paul calls him later. He calls him my fellow prisoner when he's writing Colossians. And so I don't know if Aristarchus also got arrested or if he just got to go along with him. It's not clear, but he also gets on the ship along with Luke and then a bunch of other guys. We left on a ship whose home port was Adramidium on the northwest coast of the province of Asia. So this was a, a ship coming from kind of up near Philippi area. It was down in Jerusalem and it was heading back apparently, scheduled to make several stops at ports along the coast of the province. And so they head up north to Sidon and it says Julius was very kind to Paul and let him go ashore to visit with friends so they could provide for his needs. And so he's given quite a bit of freedom. Remember, he's not a convicted prisoner. He's just a guy with some charges against him. And he is a Roman citizen. But Julius is being super cool. So he gets to hang out a little bit with the believers at Sidon. And then we put out to sea from there. We encountered strong headwinds that made it difficult to keep the ship on course. Yeah, if you notice, whenever Paul leaves Israel to go west, he always walks. 
he always comes back by ship. And that's because there were these winds that made sailing east very favorable. You could make it from Rome all the way down to Egypt in as little as 10 days. That same journey could take upwards of 60 days going from Egypt back to Rome because you had to hug the coast because it just wasn't safe to sail north straight across the Mediterranean. We sailed north of Cyprus between the island and the mainland. And it says, keeping to the open sea, we passed along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, landing at Myra in the province of Lycia. Well, there the commanding officer found an Egyptian ship from Alexandria, that's Egypt, that was bound for Italy, and he put us on board. Okay, this would have been a grain ship, massive ships coming from Egypt. Egypt literally was the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. They produced hundreds of thousands of, of tons of, of pounds of grain every year. And it says they, they got on one of these grain ships. Daryl Bach says, ancient writers talk about how big these ships were. One ship was called Isis, and it weighed anywhere from 1,200 to 2,900 gross registered tons. Lucian, another historian, describes a ship 180 feet long by 45 by 43.5. If you put that on a football field, it would look like that. 180 feet, 60 yards. Massive ship. This is the kind of ship Paul would have gotten on. Why did they build these ships so big? Well, Suetonius, the historian, tells us of a, an event that happened to Emperor Claudius that led to the building of larger grain ships. It says, when there was a scarcity of grain because of long-continued droughts, Claudius was once stopped in the middle of the forum by a mob. And he was so pelted with abuse and at the same time with pieces of bread. This is a very traumatic experience. I don't know why they're throwing the bread if they're in the middle of a drought. Eat the bread, throw rocks or something. He was barely able to make his escape to the palace by a back door. He, thought, he may have thought his life was in danger from this mob. And after this experience, he resorted to every possible means to bring grain to Rome, even in the winter season when you did not want to sail because it was super dangerous. How did he entice people to sail through the winter? To the merchants, he held out the certainty of profit by assuming the expense of any loss they might suffer from storms. So they had government-backed grain insurance, and so they could take chances, and even if they lost their grain, they knew that Caesar was going to pay him back for it. They also offered to those who would build merchant ships large bounties. And so he really subsidized the grain transport industry because it was so important. Well, Paul gets one of the, on one of these big ships headed for Rome. We had several days of slow sailing, and with great difficulty, we finally neared Nidus, this island up here. But the wind was against us, so we sailed across to Crete and along the sheltered coast of the island, past the Cape of Salmon. We struggled along the coast with great difficulty and finally arrived at Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. That sounds like a pretty good place, right? Fair havens. Well, Luke says we had lost a lot of time. And the weather was becoming dangerous for sea travel because it was so late in the fall. And Paul spoke to the ship's officers about it. You really didn't want, you did not want to start a journey after mid-September. And they were probably well into October by this point. Super dangerous to be out on the sea at this time. Paul goes to the officers of the ship and he says, Men, I believe there is trouble ahead if we go on. Shipwreck, loss of cargo, and danger to our own lives as well. You know, it's possible Paul was the most experienced sailor on that ship. You just look at the sheer volume of mileage he's traveled just in the book of Acts. 
2 Corinthians 11, Paul tells us additionally, he says, I've been shipwrecked three times. One time I had to spend a day and a night floating on the open sea after one of these shipwrecks. Paul's going to these guys and these guys, he's like, guys, I'm really worried here. I'm worried the ship might go down. Have you been through that before? Have you seen Titanic? I've been shipwrecked three times. I, I know this and I'm not interested at age 60 of going through it again. But the officer in charge of the prisoners listened more to the ship's captain and the owner than to Paul. So the owner's on the ship. And they're like, yeah, maybe we could push a little further. We got, we got grain. It's insured. Last time he's going to make that mistake of not listening to Paul. Well, since Fairhaven's was an exposed harbor, a, a poor place to spend the winter, most of the crew wanted to go oh, just a little farther up to Phoenix, farther up the coast of Crete, and spend the winter there. And so Phoenix is just a little bit further. What could go wrong? Phoenix was a good harbor with only a southwest and northwest exposure. So they're just thinking, oh, we'll just, uh, you know, a light wind began blowing from the south and the sailors thought they could make it. So they pulled up anchor and sailed close to the shore of Crete. So you can imagine they're pulling out of the harbor with smug looks on their faces thinking they're just going to do this little jaunt further up the coast looking over at Paul like, oh, you think you know so much about sailing. Well, bad things start to happen at this point. But then the weather changed abruptly and a wind of typhoon strength called a northeaster burst across the island and blew us out to sea. <laughs> so instead of hugging the coast, this wind blows them out into the Mediterranean. The sailors couldn't turn the ship into the wind and so they gave up and they just let it run before the gale. So we move west a little bit to get the, uh, the whole scope here of the Mediterranean. That's Sicily, that's southern Italy in the far left corner there. So they're heading out this way, right? Well, we sailed along the sheltered side of a small island named Cauda. And with great difficulty, we hoisted aboard the dinghy being towed behind us. You're probably wondering to yourself, what's a dinghy? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. A dinghy is like a lifeboat, but a little bit bigger. And you just tow it behind your boat instead of storing it on your boat. It's kind of like, you know, the RV tows the little car behind it so they can drive into town or whatever. Well, so, you know, this, this storm is getting... So, and they would pull this up during the storm. And Luke says, this was getting so intense. He says, we did it. So Luke, the doctor, is in there trying to help these sailors sail the boat. It says the sailors bound ropes around the hull of the ship to strengthen it. So there's some sort of bracing they're doing with ropes to try to keep the ship from falling apart. They were afraid of being driven across the, to the sandbars of Sirtis off the African coast. I love the detail from Luke here. At every point along the way, he's exactly right. So they lowered the sea anchor to slow the ship and they were driven before the wind. The next day, as gale force winds continued to batter the ship, the crew began throwing the cargo overboard. The following day, they even took some of the ship's gear and threw it overboard. That gear, that word for that gear, that can include the sails. That's how desperate they were getting. They're like, well, we don't need these anymore. <laughs> the terrible storm raged for many days, blotting out the sun and the stars until at last all hope was gone. It would have been cold. They were being 
just sprayed with cold water, soaked to the bone. They couldn't see the sun. It was constant storm. They wouldn't have had really time to sleep, time to eat. It would have been exhaustion. And it says everybody on the ship was losing hope. Everyone that is except for one guy. It said no one had eaten for a long time. But finally, Paul called the crew together and said, Men, you should have listened to me in the first place and not left Crete. Now, he's not just saying, I told you so. He's, he's trying to establish some credibility so they won't get themselves into any more trouble. But it's kind of an I told you so, too. He says, you guys would have avoided all this damage and loss. But take courage. None of you will lose your lives, even though the ship will go down. Remember the promise that God had made to Paul in 2311? He said... Just as you've testified here in Jerusalem, you will testify in Rome. Paul's on that ship. How can the ship go down if he has a promise from God like that? But God adds further to that promise while Paul is on the ship. He says, last night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me. And he said, don't be afraid, Paul, for you will surely stand trial before Caesar. He reiterates that promise, but he says, what's more... God, in his goodness, has granted safety to everyone sailing with you. Even though they didn't listen to you, Paul. I'm going to rescue them all. So take courage, Paul says, for a second time. For I believe God, it will be just as he said. That right there, guys, is spiritual leadership. That's the kind of leadership we need. When the storms are hitting... Everybody's running around, freaking out, doubting all of the, God, the promises of God. We need people who can say, don't worry. Trust in the promises of God. I believe God and it will be just as he said. That is spiritual maturity right there. Standing on the promises of God and not my feelings and not my circumstances. But we must be shipwrecked on a certain island. And it's interesting here, NLT covers this up a little bit, I... I I reinserted a couple of words that are there. But he says we must, it is necessary, be shipwrecked, not just on any old island, but there's one certain island God's aiming for here. That this is not an aimless blowing through the Mediterranean of this ship, but God had a specific landing place. He knew there were people there. And as we're going to see, he's got a message for these people. Paul says, we must be shipwrecked on a certain island. Well, about midnight on the 14th night of the storm. So this has been going on for 14 days. They are just blowing right across the Mediterranean Sea. We're being driven across the Sea of Adria. So that's Adriatic Sea. Back then, they called this whole area the Adriatic Sea that they're going through. It says, the sailors sensed that land was near. They dropped a weighted line and found the water was 120 feet deep. It's not that deep. A little later, they measured again. The water's only 90 feet deep. It's getting shallower. We're headed towards something. At this rate, they were afraid we'd soon be driven against the rocks along the shore. So they threw out four anchors from the back of the ship and prayed for daylight. And then the sailors tried to sneak out. They tried to abandon the ship. They lowered the dinghy as though they were going to put out anchors from the front of the ship. But Paul 
Maybe he's even seen this before. He said to the commanding officer and soldiers, you see what those guys are doing? He says, you guys are all going to die unless the sailors stay aboard. (laughs) So who do you think the Roman officer listens to this time? The soldiers cut the ropes to the dinghy and let it drift away. So they abandon their dinghy even at this point in the journey. And they see it drifting away. All hope is now on the ship. And then it says, just as day was dawning, Paul encouraged everyone to eat. So he's encouraging people. He says, you guys have been so worried you haven't touched food for two weeks. It's not that they had, didn't have time to eat, it was they were too anxious to eat. You ever, you ever feel that? I have. He says, please eat something now for your own good, for not a hair of your heads will perish. God promised. It didn't, it's, that's straight out of the mouth of Jesus as well. He says, trust in God. Trust Him. Trust His promises. And then He took some bread and He gave thanks to God before them all and broke off a piece and ate it. And so here we have Paul encouraging people, focusing back on the promises of God, getting other people focused on the promises of God and giving thanks to God right in the middle of this awful storm. He's walking by faith and not by sight. He says, then everyone was encouraged and began to eat. And so he's having this positive effect on everybody on board the ship. Luke says, there were 276 of us on board. (laughs) There is historical accuracy, his attention to detail. And after eating, the crew lightened the ship further by throwing the cargo of wheat overboard. They're like, well, final meal, they eat the wheat and then they throw the rest over. When morning dawned, they didn't recognize the coastline, but they did see a bay with a beach. They wondered if they could get to shore by running the ship aground. (laughs) Yeah, that might work. (laughs) What if we just ram it into the beach? (laughs) You think we'd get to shore that way? (laughs) So they cut the anchors. They left the anchors in the sea. There's basically nothing left on this ship except people at this point. They lowered the rudders, raised the foresail, and headed towards shore. But before they reached shore, they hit a shoal and they ran the ship aground too soon. So, you know, you'd, you'd kind of have like, like, you know, shores over here and you kind of have the land would go up and then down again before it would come back up again to shore. And so they hit this kind of like this big sandbar out here. And it was really hard. So the ship stuck into it while the stern was repeatedly smashed by the force of the waves and began to break apart. So the front of the ship is stuck, the back of the ship is getting battered by waves, and that ship is about had it at this point. <laughs> After 14 days of this, it's not holding together too well. The soldiers wanted to kill the prisoners to make sure they didn't swim ashore and escape. Yeah, as a Roman soldier in prison duty, you could not lose your prisoners. If they gave you 50 prisoners, you had to show up with 50 prisoners. And, you know, if 25 were dead and 25 were alive, they were fine with that. But if you show up with 40, 10 of those soldiers get killed. And so they were like, look, let's just kill these guys. The bodies will wash ashore. We'll collect them all and we'll, we'll load them up and take them to Rome. However, Julius, the commanding officer, liked Paul. Wanted to spare Paul. So he didn't let him carry out their plan. Is Julius a Christian by now? I don't know. You think Paul might have had some sort of an impact on this guy, though? He says, no, you're not killing these prisoners. 
Then he ordered all who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land. The others held on to planks or debris from the broken ship. So grab something that floats and kick for shore, guys. And so, Luke says, everyone escaped safely to shore, all 276 of us. Just like God promised. That shouldn't be that surprising. I want to say just a couple of words about this storm in Acts 27. This account, by the way, is, is possibly the most exciting ancient voyage account in existing ancient literature. We see Luke just at port after port, point after point, term after term, using exactly the right terms. As we see God carry them through. This storm was longer and more painful probably than anyone imagined. Storms can be that way. Suffering in our lives can be that way as well. It hits, and you think, surely this can't go on much longer, and it keeps going. And it keeps going. And it keeps going. And Paul had been through this before, where things got so bad, he thought he, thought he was going to die. And yet God saw the storm coming. God foresaw all of this. God allowed it to happen. In fact, this storm... The storm, God had a purpose for the storm. Think about it. You know, for one, it was a storm of correction. Those soldiers did not listen to Paul. The sailors did not listen to Paul. And they kind of got themselves into this mess. And uh, sometimes storms will happen in our lives, suffering will happen in our lives because we didn't listen to God. Some people get angry at God. What you need to do is you need to learn. Learn what you can from the suffering you're going through. Maybe there's something that God wants to teach you through this. He wants to set you back on the right track. It says that a father disciplines those who he loves. It could also be a storm of instruction. You know, think about how much God taught the sailors, the fellow prisoners, the soldiers through this storm as they witnessed the difference between how Paul and his guys suffered versus how everybody else on that ship was suffering. Also, it's not just these guys, but the people living on this island where God sent them. He's got something to show those guys, too, about what God is like. And so sometimes God leads us into suffering, and it's because he wants to teach us something. He wants to teach us how to depend on him in the midst of suffering. He wants to deepen our faith. He wants to teach us to walk by faith and not by sight. And sometimes it's a storm of direction where God sends this storm because he didn't want them going that way. He wanted them going this way. And sometimes this sort of thing is the best way to head us in the right direction. And where he sent them was this island called Malta. But as you read this chapter, you can just see how Paul can write to the Philippians later this year. He says, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Yes. You see a contentment from him as he trusts in the promises of God here. Well, once we are safe on shore, Luke writes, we learned that we were on the island of Malta. It's funny, this tiny little island would be pretty easy to miss that and blow all the way across the rest of the Mediterranean, maybe to Spain or North Africa somewhere. They couldn't have made it that long, and yet they hit the little speck of an island right there. Malta is an island we know of today, a beautiful Mediterranean Isle. 
he says, the people of the island were very kind to us. So the locals, they finally meet the locals, and the locals are kind. That's good news. And it was cold and rainy, so they built a fire on shore to welcome us. This is the Malta Tourism Bureau. Hey, welcome to Malta. Would you like a fire? <laughs> well, Paul, exhausted, and yet looking not to his own interests, but also the interests of others, is like, I can help. So he gets up, he's helping these guys make the fire. He's got a big armful of sticks. He's walking over to the fire, and as he's laying them on the fire, Luke tells us, a poisonous snake driven out by the heat bit him on the hand. If that wasn't bad enough, so here's Paul. He's like, I just survived the shipwreck, and now there's a poisonous snake hanging from my hand. The people of the island look over at him. They see it hanging from his hand, and they say, A murderer, no doubt. Though he escaped the sea, justice will not permit him to live. And Paul's like, yeah, yeah. Well, it's official. Paul is having a bad day. <laughs> you have one of these days where you survive a 14-day storm followed by a shipwreck, and then you try to serve, and a poisonous snake latches onto you, <laughs> thus proving to the locals that you're a murderer and the gods have gotten you. Yeah, okay, so at what point do you just quit, all right? At what point do you just say, I've, I've had enough of this, I've tried to do the right thing, and I'm just going to take a little break here from serving God. How much discomfort? What is your threshold? I don't know if some of you know me. I don't have a real high tolerance for discomfort. <laughs> you got only funny to my home church, apparently. <laughs> really funny. Man, I think this is illustrated by the last, one of the last times I was on a boat, all right? My, uh, let me tell you the story. My wife's cousin was getting married down in Mexico. And her family paid to fly us down to this wedding and stay at this resort where they owned a bunch of timeshares. And so here I am on this Pacific this Pacific Shore resort, right? Her brother-in-law has a great idea. He's like, let's go on this, this really nice luxury cruise. There's snorkeling. There's a, there's a horseback ride up to a mountain waterfall. It's going to be great. Well, I show up, and I realize this is not a luxury cruise. This is a booze cruise, <laughs> which I should have guessed when it was 25 bucks for lunch and all the tequila you can drink. <laughs> and you know, by this time, I, it, this is like day three in Mexico, so my, my stomach is feeling kind of upset. <laughs> and this thing was just, just terrible, okay? So you know, they take us to the snorkeling, they dump us in water where I literally cannot see my hand here, six inches from my goggles, much less the fish that are allegedly in the water. <laughs> Okay, the, the mountain, 
The horseback ride up to the mountain to the waterfall. Okay, they put, us, they put me on this horse. It was so malnourished. I could count not just the ribs, but I could actually see a very distinct outline of the pelvis. All right? It was, and these horses, they knew that dinner was at the bottom of the mountain. And they wanted to get back as soon as possible. And so on the way up, it kept turning sideways. And I really think intentionally ran my leg into that wire fence, gashing it open, which was, I guess, I appreciate it since there was a cliff on the other side of the fence. And then they get to the top, and the horses know I got to get down to get dinner, okay? So it's like the Kentucky Derby. <laughs> galloping down the hill. I am terrified. They're dodging hikers. Um, so here I am. I'm just sitting there. I'm just on strike. I'm feeling so sorry for myself. And here I am on the Pacific at, for free on a boat. And I'm feeling sorry for myself. Everybody else was having a good time. It was my attitude stunk. And, you know, all the rest of my wife's family members are like, man, what's wrong with your husband? What a, what a whiner. And yet, I, I, just, I just quit, you know? I was like, I'm not having a good attitude here. I'm going to feel sorry for myself. And it, in the, the place where I have less reason than usual to feel sorry for myself. And so, it kind of raises the question, what's your threshold? What's it take for you to quit serving? What's it take for you to boycott gratitude? Because if anybody had reached that point, it would be Paul here. You know, you're like, I'll serve, I'll be grateful as long as I get enough sleep every night, as long as everybody likes me. Yeah, I'll serve God as long as, um, as, long as it fits into my schedule, you know. And um, if my schedule doesn't permit, then well, I'll just have to get back around to that later. Um, yeah, I mean, what's, what's your threshold? What are you looking for? Will you serve God no matter what? Because, you know, there's lots of ways to quit. I mean, some, there's dramatic quitting where I'm just like, you just announce it and you walk away altogether. But there's also, there's a way of quitting where you kind of keep up some of the outward appearances. But deep down in your heart, you realize, I'm not going all out anymore. And I have given up on really trying all that hard and I'm just going to fit this in around everything else. Yeah, there's lots of ways to quit, but there's really only one way to keep going. And that's to do what Paul did here. This is not, look how great Paul is, but Paul is just a guy who trusted God. A guy who said, I believe everything is going to turn out like God promised here. And he clung to that promise no matter what. And he encouraged others to do the same. That's what we need. That's what we need in this fellowship. That's what you need in your life. That is spiritual maturity. The ability to cling to the promises of God, to cling to your gratitude, to choose to serve God no matter what because of what He says is true and because of the power that He promises to deliver. So what does Paul do here? He's standing there. The snake is hanging from his hand. He's got that promise from God that you're going to testify in Rome before Caesar so what does he do? Luke tells us. Paul just shook the snake into the fire and was unharmed. So Paul is so tough, gets bitten by a poisonous snake, and the snake dies. 
Sounds like Chuck Norris here, man. I do want to point this out before we move on, too. Notice what the people living on this island said when they saw this. When they saw Paul get bit by that snake. They said, though he escaped the sea, justice will not permit him to live. These people knew there was such a thing as right and wrong. They also knew there was such a thing as justice. That one day, people would have to pay for the wrongs that they had done. What they didn't know was that Paul actually was a murderer. That he had killed. And yet he stood under the grace of God. And that's what he has sent Paul to this island to tell these people about. That yes, there is such a thing as right and wrong. Yes, there is such a thing as justice and even a judgment day. But there's more to the story than that. That God has sent his son, Jesus Christ. And he died for your sins. Justice carried out on him. Because he took, he took the punishment that you deserved. And so God is perfectly just and the justifier of everyone who puts their faith in Christ. Well, the people are watching. And they're waiting for Paul to either swell up or suddenly drop dead. When they waited a long time and saw that he wasn't harmed, they changed their mind and decided he must be a god. <laughs> Not the first time Paul's been mistaken for a god in this book. Well, near the shore where we landed was an estate belonging to Publius, the chief official of the island. And in case you were wondering, Luke also gets his official title right as well. We have an inscription. You can check out that reference there. We have an inscription of another guy named Pudens, who it says was the chief official of Malta. Exact same terminology that Luke uses here. And so he's getting the, the names of the officials right, the titles right in every single city along the way, Malta included. Never doubt Luke, okay? Never doubt scripture. Publius, the chief official of the island, welcomed us and treated us kindly for three days. And as it happened, Publius' father was ill with fever and dysentery. Oh no, Publius' dad has dysentery. <laughs> Fortunately, Paul went in and prayed for him and laying his hands on him, he healed him. That was a close one. Well, then all the other sick people on the island came and were healed. So word spreads. Publius's dad is healed of dysentery. Everybody else starts showing up and says, these guys have power. There's something special about these guys. And even though Luke doesn't tell us, I'm, I'm certain they told these people about Jesus also. Like every other time a miracle happens in Acts, where they're like, look, don't look at me like I did this. The only reason I can do this is because the power of Jesus Christ. You know, I'm sure they said something like this. Look, you guys, you know there's right and wrong. You know there's justice. And I'm here to tell you what you worship in ignorance, I now declare to you that there is a, the Lord God. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He sent his son. And you need to put your trust in Him. You need to put your faith in Christ. And you can be forgiven. He wants to heal not just your body, but He wants to resurrect your body someday. And forgive all of your sins. Well, as a result, we were showered with honors. And when the time came to sail, people supplied us with everything we would need for the trip. 
Well, it was three months after the shipwreck that we set sail on another ship that had wintered at the island. So they weren't the only ones there. There was an Alexandrian ship with the twin gods as its figurehead, Castor and Pollux, the twins. They would put those sometimes in the front of ships. And so they're down here at Malta, and Luke tells us our first stop was at Syracuse, where we stayed three days. From there, we sailed across to Regium, and a day later, a south wind began blowing, and so the following day, we sailed up the coast to Puteoli. They're in Italy now, you can tell. And there, we found some believers who invited us to spend a whole week with them. And so Paul's like, uh, shout out to my boys in Puteoli for keeping us for the week. You know, I mean, he's still technically headed for Rome as a, as a prisoner, but he's like, hey, Julius, I'm going to go hang with these guys for a week. And Julius's like, all right, see you. <laughs> and so we came to Rome. Or should I say, Rome came to them. The brothers and sisters in Rome heard we were coming. And I think it was just one of those things where they just couldn't wait to see Paul. He'd never been there, but... You know, I wonder if some of his friends like Aquila and Priscilla were still there. He had buddies there at Rome. And it says, they came to meet us at the Forum on the Appian Way. So they kind of meet in the middle. The Appian Way, maybe the most famous road in ancient Rome. These guys walked 43 miles to meet up with Paul. I just imagine the, the joy he must have felt after such a long journey. After wanting to go to Rome for so long and not going the way he expected to go. You could almost see the tears on their faces as they have this reunion, and in some cases, meeting for the first time. Others joined us at the Three Taverns, which was 10 miles away. And when Paul saw them, he was encouraged, and he thanked God. Of course, he was also thanking God and encouraging people in the midst of the storm. But it's maybe a little different here when he gets this, this close fellowship with these believers there. Well, Luke tells us that when we arrived in Rome, Paul was permitted to have his own private lodging, though he was guarded by a soldier. Yeah, instead of being down in the dank, nasty dungeon, apparently the Philippians sent a gift that allowed him to rent some quarters there in Rome. Now, he was chained to a guard, yet he was able to have visitors as much as he wanted to, and he was able to write as much as he wanted to, which becomes important. Three days after Paul's arrival, he called together local Jewish leaders. So he continues to go first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. He calls the Jews together. Isn't this what got him into this trouble in the first place? He says to them, Brothers, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Roman government, even though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our ancestors. He's trying to squelch any rumors that they might have heard. The Romans tried me. They wanted to release me but because they found no cause for death sentence. But... When the Jewish leaders protested the decision, I felt it necessary to appeal to Caesar. Even though I had no desire to press charges against my own people. I'm not trying to make Jerusalem look bad here, guys. I asked you to come here today so we could get acquainted. And so I could explain to you that I'm bound with this chain because I believe that the hope of Israel, the Messiah, has already come. That's why I'm in chains. Well, they replied, we've had no letters from Judea or reports against you from anyone who's come here. I was like, huh. But we want to hear what you believe. He's like, wait, so you, you haven't heard anything about me? And you, want, you want me to teach? And they're like, yeah. The only thing we know about this movement is this 
denounced everywhere. <laughs> it's like, well then, how's tomorrow sound? <laughs> so a time was set, and on that day, a large number of people came to Paul's lodging. He explained and testified about the kingdom of God and tried to persuade them about Jesus from the scriptures. We've seen this before. Using the law of Moses and the books of the prophets, he spoke to them from morning until evening. And some were persuaded by the things he said, but others did not believe. We've seen that before, too. And after they had argued back and forth among themselves, they left with this final word from Paul, the final word he said to the, the Jewish uh, people there in Rome that didn't accept Christ. He said, The Holy Spirit was right when he said to your ancestors through Isaiah the prophet, he said, go and say to this people, when you hear what I say, you won't understand. When you see what I do, you won't comprehend. Why can't they hear? Why can't they see? He says, it's because the hearts of these people are hardened. And their ears can't hear. And they've closed their eyes. So their eyes can't see. And their ears can't hear. And their hearts cannot understand. He says, you harden your heart to this, you're going to get blind, more blind and more deaf. And they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. And that's really what God wants. That's God's will for your life. It's not to go out and do all these good works and to prove that you're worthy. Paul was a murderer. No. It's to open your heart to him. To open your eyes. To open your ears. To turn to him and let him heal you. That's what he wants. That's what he's offering. That's the good news. It offends our pride, but it's so worth it because this is what God is extending to you. This offer right here. You can receive Christ tonight. If you open your heart and your ears and your eyes, you can let the healing begin. And so Paul says, I want you to know this salvation from God has also been offered to the Gentiles and they will accept it. And for the next two years, Paul lived in Rome at his own expense. He welcomed all who visited him, boldly proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. And no one tried to stop him. The end of the book of Acts. Seems a little anticlimactic, if you ask me. I remember the first time I read Acts all the way through, I, I really thought Paul was going to get crucified at the end. Like Jesus did, it kind of felt like the Gospels, but for Paul... But no, it... It ends with Paul in prison. That's where Luke ends his investigation. That's where he ends his writing. Did he intend to write a third volume? I don't know. We don't have it, though. And so it leaves us wondering, what happened after that? What happened after Acts 28? Well, best we can guess, Paul spent two years in prison. That's what Luke said there, right? For the next two years. The implication is after two years, he wasn't in prison anymore. I think Luke would have told us if he knew Paul had died. Uh, Paul spent two years in prison. He wrote four different letters we have in our New Testament. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. This also would have been the time when the rest of Luke Acts would have come together. He would have been working with Luke on this project under Paul's apostolic authority. And that would be from 60 to 62 AD. But every indication we've got says that he testified before Nero. Isn't that what God promised him would happen in 27-24? Now Nero went crazy right around the early 60s. So this would be right when Paul was in prison. That's when Seneca died. He lost some of his constraints and he really went off the deep end. But Paul testified before Nero. I don't know what mental state Nero was in at the time. 
But apparently he was released. He says, he indicates in Philemon, I'm going to be released. He says in Philippians, I'm certain I'm going to be released. And he would have done some further writing and some further travels from 62 to about 66 AD. Maybe during this time he visited Spain, like he told the Romans that he wanted to do. There's indications in extra-biblical writings that he might have done that. Seems pretty certain that he visited Crete from the letter he writes to Titus, where he says, I left you there at Crete to do this, that, and the other thing. So there was some church planning going on on the island of Crete, an island they would have sailed right by on this final journey. It looks like he went back to the Ephesus again, too. According to 1 Timothy 1.3, he says, When I departed, I left you there at Ephesus. And here were the instructions I gave you. Looks like he, he did get to see the Ephesian church again. There was also persecution. In addition to writing Titus and 1 Timothy, it looks like persecution really ramped up during this time. The fire that burned down Rome was in 64 AD, and historians tell us, secular historians say that Nero blamed it on the Christians. A great persecution broke out against the Christians. Paul and his people may have, been to, may have needed to be a little more undercover. And after traveling around, we see that Paul was finally captured again by Nero around the same time that Peter was captured, according to Eusebius' church history. And he was thrown into a dungeon in Rome, no longer under cushy house arrest, but a, a dank, dark dungeon deserted by most of his friends. He says, all have deserted me. Luke is here. Paul wrote to Timothy one last time in the book of 2 Timothy that we have as well, his final words. And he expresses deep love for Timothy. He says, Timothy, please come and visit me and please bring Mark too. And he says this, he says, the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, Timothy. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. He says, I can't wait. I get to go see Jesus face to face. I get the reward for all the labor I've poured out for him in this life. And he says, it's not just for me. I'm not the only one that gets a reward. Every single believer who has longed for his appearing. Every single Christian who has served Christ will be rewarded for what they've done in this life. That includes you. And then we don't know if Timothy made it in time. We don't know if Mark made it there before Paul was executed. But he was killed in 66 or 67 AD. Tradition says the same day that Peter was crucified upside down, Paul was beheaded. He would have had a more noble death as a Roman citizen. And I like how John Pollock describes this scene at the end of his book, The Apostle. He talks about the procession down the Appian Way to the executioner's block. He says crowds would recognize an execution squad by the lictors with their fasces of rods and axe, and the executioner carrying a sword which in Nero's reign had replaced the axe. They'd recognize it by the escort, but they'd recognize it also by the manacled criminal walking stiffly and bandy-legged, an old man who'd suffered greatly, ragged and filthy from his prison, but surprisingly in this case, not ashamed or degraded, because he was going to a feast, to a triumph, to the crowning day to which he had pressed forward. He who had talked often of God's promise of eternal life in Jesus could not fear. 
He believed as he had spoken all God's promises. Find their yes in Jesus. No executioner was going to lose him the conscious presence of Jesus. He was not changing his company, only the place where he enjoyed it. Better still, he would see Jesus. Those glimpses on the Damascus Road, in Jerusalem, at Corinth, on that sinking ship. Now he's going to see Jesus face to face to know, even as he had been known. And what a good day that was going to be for Paul. What a good day it was. Do you have this kind of confidence in the face of death? To know that you will see Jesus and to know that you will leave this world behind and go to Him in who you've placed all your hope? Do you want a guarantee of eternal life? Jesus Christ is the only one who can guarantee that because He's the only one who's defeated death. And so what happened after that? Well, the book of Acts is done. The Acts of the Apostles, that was done before the end of the first century. And yet, when we think back to that promise Jesus made in Acts chapter 1, where he promised his Holy Spirit would come, and he would give power, and he would call his followers to be his witnesses all over the world. Well, that call still applies today. The acts of the Holy Spirit continue on right into our present day. And He's calling to you. He's calling on you to be my witness. He's calling on you to receive His power. He's calling on you to live your whole life for Him so that you can die and go and be with Him. You can die with honor. You can die and look forward to your reward. That's the life that God is calling you to. And that's really the message of Acts. It's a story about all that Jesus began to do through the Holy Spirit, and he continues to work today. Lord, it's so true that not one of your promises have ever failed. I pray, God, that we... Those of us who have a relationship with you, we'd be people that trust in those promises and stand firm on those promises no matter what kind of suffering comes our way and no matter what kind of accusations come our way. I pray too for people here who are not believers in you. I pray that they would take to heart the words of Paul there at the end, that call to open, open their hearts, Lord, to open their eyes and to turn to you so that you can heal them. I pray they would experience your healing forgiveness starting tonight, God. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.